0: Could you survive if you were all alone in the wild, in the outback or deep in a forest? Uh, that's the question raised by a TV reality show called Alone. Uh, in fact, I think one of their series, they dumped people all alone in Antarctica. I've only seen one or two of the episodes of this show. It is it is intense. Uh, you know the other survival-type reality TV shows. Well, there's, you know, there's the adventurer plus a whole camera crew around them. This one, it's it really they are alone. It's just a man or a woman and a couple of GoPro cameras that they set up around their their area, and whatever else they can fit in just a regular-sized backpack, uh, trying to survive in the wilds. Uh, it's it's intense stuff. As one of the promos for the show says. If the elements or the wildlife don't get you, the isolation will. Now, even if the idea of subjecting yourself to this kind of challenge has absolutely no appeal to you, though I think for some people in this room it probably does, for many of us, the kinds of stories of surviving it out there by yourself Those stories really resonate in our hearts. We romanticise the idea of the person who's uh, self-sufficient, self-made. Maybe it's the idea of growing your own food, not relying on anyone else for survival, going off the grid. Some of us apply this to the Christian life. We think that the strong Christian, the mature Christian we have this idea that the goal of the Christian life is not to need help or support. Self-sufficient, self-financed, self-taught, self-accountable. Is this what the Christian life is meant to be like? Now, we're going through the book of Acts at the moment. It's the record of the earliest believers. And in Acts, we've seen believers scattered sent away from the people and places they know, they are scattered because of persecution. And we first heard about this back in Acts chapter 8. Uh, This was after Stephen was lynched, uh, following his murder by an angry mob, believers scattered. The church that had been centred in Jerusalem is scattered into the regions of Judea and Samaria. And we heard about this a few weeks ago. Uh, today, we're picking things up. So it was Acts chapter 8. We're now in Acts chapter 11 and we're reminded of that event and we pick up the story of these scattered believers. Because of the persecution, they've been scattered further afield, further than the historic boundaries of Israel up north and to the island of Cyprus. And just as we saw in chapter 8, as they scatter, these everyday believers can't help but speak of Jesus. So read with me from verse 19. So Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. All right, so we've thought about Acts chapter 8. Let's go right back to the beginning of Acts. Our key verse for Acts is Acts 1, verse 8. God's plan is for the salvation of the whole world, for salvation to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus was sending those who had seen him alive to go to the whole world. And as we've been following the book of Acts, following the story of the earliest Christians, it's starting to happen. We've seen the message of Jesus go to an Ethiopian, so to go way down south into Africa. And now the message is spreading north toward Asia. But it seems that this is a bit of a pattern here. It's not so much that the believers are showing initiative. It's not that the apostles have taken Jesus' command, Acts one eight to heart. It's necessity, it's persecution causing the spread. What does this show us? This is God's mission. God's heart is for his kingdom to grow. His mission cannot be stopped. Uh, and once again, as the gospel pushes into new areas, questions are raised. We've been hearing this over the last few weeks. What are the boundaries of God's kingdom? Is salvation only for the people of Israel? Is it only for those who follow the law of Moses? Or is it for the whole world? And we've seen God answer this question very clearly. As the Samaritans and then God-fearers, the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius the centurion, God has sent his people to take the message of salvation beyond the border of Israel. And people have received the message and through the Spirit been welcomed into the people of God. The question has been answered very clearly. When God says all people, he means all people. Once again... As the gospel pushes north, the question, though, is being raised. It may well be that the things we're reading about today happened before the conversion of Cornelius, or maybe these believers haven't heard that non-Jews can be saved. Either way, some of the scattered believers are only telling Jews about Jesus, but others are telling whoever will listen, no matter their ethnicity or religion. Verse 20... Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus, and the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Uh, These are normal, everyday believers, and they're just going about their lives They can't help but speak about Jesus. Because they love Jesus, they speak about him. And in God's kindness, both Jews and Greeks are saved, which gets the attention of Jerusalem. In Acts 8, when Samaritans started trusting in Jesus, the Jerusalem church came on down to see what was going on. The same thing happens here. Uh, The church in Jerusalem, here's what's going on in Antioch, uh, that a large number of Jews and Greeks are being saved and they want to find out what's going on. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now we aren't told why they sent Barnabas, but the vibe you get in this part of Acts is the church in Jerusalem is a bit anxious about non-Jews joining the people of God. They might be anxious in a negative way, not so keen on associating with Gentiles as we saw last week. They're unclean. You don't eat with them. You don't talk to them if you don't have to. Though it could also be a more positive anxiety. It might be the church in Jerusalem thought it was great. They might have been praising God that a large number of Jews and Gentiles had come to faith but they were worried about this young, growing church. Maybe they were worried there was no one to build them up, no one to grow them in the way of Jesus, no one to lead them through the inevitable conflict and tension that would come as Jews and Gentiles start living together as God's people. They're going to have to work out, well, what do we do with some of the Jewish food laws? Do we have to follow them? We're not told what motivated the Jerusalem church to send Barnabas, but the result, the outcome, was that positive kind of concern. Barnabas gets to Antioch. He he sees what God has done. He's blown away what God has done. And so he sticks around to teach, encourage, and build up the church. Verse 23. When he, that's Barnabas, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. And encourage them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Uh, we've met Barnabas a couple of times previously in Acts. Uh, the first time was in Acts chapter 4. His name is not actually Barnabas, that's a nickname the apostles give him. His real name was Joseph, but the apostles call him Barnabas, which is Aramaic for son of encouragement. Uh, He was an encourager. And so when he got to Antioch, uh, whether he was anxious about Gentile believers or not, when he gets there and sees clearly God's grace at work in Jew and Gentile alike, he, he does what his name says. He encourages them to stick with Jesus. He encourages them to hold fast to the gospel. Now, whether that was the purpose of his visit, we don't know. But that's the result. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to compare Barnabas to modern day missionaries or even assessor elders like we have in our church. Now, if you haven't been part of a Presbyterian church before or you're just not familiar with the term, uh, in Presbyterian circles there's this term assessor elder. Uh, The Bible talks about elders leading churches In fact, we see that term for the first time at the end of chapter 11. Churches aren't led by CEOs. The congregation doesn't lead itself. It's led by elders. In our denomination, if there is a need in a church, if a church doesn't have any or enough of its own elders or sometimes if there's, say, a conflict uh, or some other problem with the elders or with the church, in our denomination, the presbytery, which is a group of ministers and elders in a local area, the presbytery steps in and sends what's called assessor elders, elders from nearby churches who can help and encourage. I reckon Barnabas is a bit like this. Whatever the purpose of sending Barnabas, the result is partnership. He goes there and he leads these new believers in Antioch. Through Barnabas, the church in Jerusalem, the church that was founded by the apostles, a church that would have had mature leadership and strong and true teaching, they send their gospel partnership, sorry, they express their gospel partnership with the church in Antioch by sending someone to encourage them someone who knows the gospel, knows Jesus really well, someone who's able to teach, encourage and grow this young church. And it works. The church in Antioch continues to grow and soon Barnabas realises he needs a partner in the work. Verse 25. Uh, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I've put a map up there so you can see. Antioch is the arrow to the south. Tarsus is up to the northwest. Barnabas and Saul have a history. In Acts 9, which is when Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus When he first returns to Jerusalem, not as a persecutor, but as a preacher of the gospel, on that first visit to Jerusalem, about three years after he met Jesus, the believers in Jerusalem are wary of Saul. They still remember his persecution. But Barnabas has confidence in Saul and introduces him to the Apostles. Maybe Saul goes and looks, sorry, Barnabas goes and looks for Saul because of all of these non-Jews and these Gentiles in the church. Maybe Saul had told Barnabas about how Jesus said his job was to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. And maybe Barnabas thought, hey, we've got this church full of Greeks and, and Jews. I need someone like Saul. This is a job for Saul. This is exactly what Jesus said Saul needs to be doing. So he goes and finds Saul. Maybe he thought about Saul's training as a Pharisee, that he knew the Bible, what we call the Old Testament. He knew it really, really well. Maybe he thought he needed Saul's sharp, biblical and theological mind to teach this new church. Maybe... There were no mature believers yet in Antioch. A whole lot of people had become Christians, but there was no one yet who was the kind of eldership material, no one to, to raise up and appoint as an elder in the church. And here you've got this growing church. Barnabas could not and should not do this alone. So he thought, hey, Saul's just up around the corner. He'd be a perfect partner to lead this church. We don't know exactly what's going through Barnabas's mind, but he needs a partner in ministry He couldn't teach and lead a church alone. And so he goes and grabs Saul, brings him back down to Antioch, and for a year they stay there working in this gospel partnership. And maybe they would have stayed longer, except a situation arose. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. For many of us, the word prophets grabs our attention. This is the first time we've met anyone with this title in the book of Acts. We've had plenty of preachers, plenty of witnesses, encouragers. This is the first time we've heard of prophets. Agabus and his mates sound a bit different from the Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, prophets didn't do that much predicting. Their main thing was to give a message from God and the message was normally a warning Stop oppressing the poor. Stop worshipping idols or else God will punish you. This prophecy is a bit different. It's a prediction of a future event. Uh, There's no mention whether this famine comes as God's judgment. He simply says this is what's going to happen in the future. And his prediction is right. And that's the point Luke makes in those bracketed words. Uh, During the time when Claudius was the Roman Caesar, there was significant food insecurity, including a really serious famine that hit Judea Judea around about 47 AD. Agabus brings this message and the disciples in Antioch decide to help. Uh, They looked at their resources and each of them according to their ability they gave according to the need in Jerusalem. It's an astounding response. They could have heard this prophecy and got anxious and decided to hoard food for themselves. Cuz Agabus had said, look, this famine's going to be widespread. But that wouldn't have been a gospel-shaped response. That wouldn't have been the kind of life Saul and Barnabas had been modelling and teaching. If you set your mind, we're going doing a lot of back and forth today, aren't we? If you set your mind way back to Acts chapter 2 that we looked at at the start of the year, after the day of Pentecost, we see Christians share their possessions. They had everything in common. They didn't think that their money was theirs. They didn't even think their home or land belonged to themselves. They generously and sacrificially provided for those in need. And in fact, the first time we meet Barnabas, the reason we're introduced to Barnabas is because he was someone who sold a field, gave the proceeds to the apostles, and they used that money to help those in need. Barnabas did this locally for the church in Jerusalem. It makes sense that this church in Antioch would do the same kind of thing, but this time not within their own church, but for another church. The church in Jerusalem had partnered spiritually with the church in Antioch. The Jerusalem church was rich in teaching and leadership. Out of its riches, the Jerusalem church had sent Barnabas to encourage and teach in Antioch. And now the partnership flows the other way. The Antioch church is rich in finances and is able to encourage and support believers in Jerusalem physically. The difference Jesus has made in their lives is astounding, isn't it? Back in Acts 2, when we read about what believers in Jerusalem did, having all things in common, that is huge. It's a, it's a great challenge for us today, isn't it? But I reckon what these believers in Antioch do, it's even bigger. They generously and sacrificially give to people they've never met. They give at a time when there is risks abounding. They do this because of what Jesus had done for them. Their generosity shows they know the generous heart of God. God has shown his grace to them in Jesus. He's generously forgiven them and given them new life. And out of knowing God's generosity, they're able to be generous to others. What Barnabas and the church in Antioch show us is following Jesus isn't a solo mission. Self-sufficiency isn't a Christian virtue. The gospel doesn't teach us to be self-reliant. Through the cross, Jesus saves a people to himself. And we put this into practice locally. You can't be a Christian without church. We need one another. We need the encouragement of other believers We need encouragement to keep keep us trusting in Jesus. Christianity is not a solo adventure. We need one another. Our inability to to believe this just reveals our pride, doesn't it? Well, we love the part where we get to help others because we can boast about that. We don't like telling people about how we've needed support. But partnership in the gospel goes both ways, as we see there with Antioch and Jerusalem. And this isn't only for us as Christians, it's true between churches as well. As a Presbyterian church, there are some really concrete ways we put gospel partnership into practice. Over the last seven years, we, our church, has been on the receiving end of Gospel generosity. Our church has received almost $100,000 in generous support from other churches in our denomination. We've been financially supported to keep going as a church. Early this year when Rayett came up as a student minister, yes, we were supporting him and his family and part of his training, but Kenmore Prezi kept paying him so that he could do that. They generously supported us and Rayek and his family to be part of the ministry here for those four weeks. That's two examples. If you know anything of the history of our church, it's not the first time. There have been a couple of times in our history when we have benefited deeply from others' generosity. And that's something to be thankful to God for. Uh, right now, we experience the partnership of having Assessor Elders uh, John O and Shane, and this partnership is not just about them. It's an expression of their churches, uh, Bagara and Maruchidor Presbyterian. They're partnering with us through the time and energy of their ministers. Now, this is an interim situation until we elect local elders. But although it's interim, there's something good about this and something we can thank God for. Last week we heard about Queensland Theological College, our theological college, and the challenge they have before us because of the Presbyterian Church of Queensland being in receivership. Uh, This whole receivership situation uh, is a challenge for our partnership, the partnership we have between churches in our denomination. It's very easy as you hear bits and pieces about the news and the situation we're in, it's very easy to stand back and be cynical. It's easy to want to lay blame at various people. But the gospel reality is we are partners. There is interdependence. And over the next couple of years, as PCQ works its way through this final financial situation, there's going to be plenty of opportunities for us to show gospel partnership. Instead of being cynical, being generous. It's going to be costly. There are going to be some costly decisions churches will need to make throughout our state. But Antioch was called to costly decisions to show love for their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's it's what we've been called to in Christ. Uh, on On a global scale, every Easter and Christmas, we get an opportunity to put gospel partnership into practice through the PresAid appeals. PresAid is run through the national denomination. It's got a very simple mission. It receives from the generosity of Christians in Australia and it distributes those contributions to churches throughout the world. Some of the stuff we've played a small part in partnering with is pretty amazing. For example... There are about half a million people who are refugees, uh, South Sudanese people who are refugees, living in Ethiopia in refugee camps. Half a million people. Of those half a million people, about 100,000 people of them uh, are Presbyterians. There are 90 Presbyterian churches, that is more than we have in our state, there is 90 in these refugee camps in Ethiopia. One of the ways churches in Australia have partnered and and showed the gospel partnership in action with our brothers and sisters in these camps is we have raised and given around $300,000 to buy Bibles in the New Air language so that our brothers and sisters in really horrible situations, I'm sure, can have God's word in their own language. Uh, That's just one project. Uh, This Christmas there'll be another opportunity to partner with through PresAid, I want to encourage us as we are able to follow the example of Barnabas and the church in Antioch uh, to live out our gospel partnership. Because when we partner with other believers, when when churches partner with one another, we show the world what God has done. Uh, In Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We are the family of God. Uh, This is true on a local level as we are united in God's church and throughout the world as churches partner together. And as we do this, it shows Jesus has changed us. We're going against the flow of individualism and selfishness. Instead of idolizing self-reliance and self-sufficiency, we show that through the gospel of Jesus, we are united. We partner across things that would normally divide us. Now let's pray. God will strengthen us to do this. Please join with me. Father God, we praise you that your grace has been extended beyond the boundaries of Israel, to Greeks and even to us in Australia. Please help us to be like those everyday believers in Antioch who couldn't help but speak about Jesus. In your kindness, pour out your grace in our region that many would hear about Jesus and turn to him. Help us be a church shaped by gospel partnerships. Help us to be gracious recipients of help and support. We thank you for the support we've received, particularly through our denomination and especially through Jono and Shane who serve us as Assessor Elders. As we continue to pray for wisdom as we consider future local Elders, we pray you'd equip Jono and Shane as they lead us from a distance. Please grow us in gospel generosity. Help us to be generous not only to support each other in our church, but also to look beyond our church, to brothers and sisters around the world who are in need. Help us consider the resources you've entrusted to us that we might put into practice our gospel partnership by supporting those in need. Help us to not only see their physical or financial needs, but consider their spiritual needs too.